The Colorado Behavioral Health and Wellness Summit brought clinicians, educators, researchers, policymakers, and leaders in the field of behavioral health together at the University of Denver. The summit was a collaboration between the Mental Health Center of Denver, the University of Denver, and Envision U, who were gracious enough to invite the Emergency Medical Minute to record the event and share it with you all. Here is Karen Prestia, the Director of Marketing and Communications at the Mental Health Center of Denver, with Sheena Cady, the Deputy Director at One Colorado, with their presentation, Words Matter, How Language Can Shift Public Thinking. Thank you for coming today um, to the presentation about Words Matter, How Language Can Shift Public Speaking. It's kind of in two parts. I'm going to do one part on mental health and talk about language matters with mental health. And then Sheena over here will also talk about um, language for LGBTQ individuals and how again we speak about that in a more appropriate way. So um, are any of you from the members of the media, reporters, write stories about mental health, LGBTQ issues? Right, great. This is really overall general information anyway. So okay. All right, great. So I'm just going to start with this quote that uh, from Robin Williams, that no matter what people tell you, words and ideas can change the world. Um, research actually shows that the way people speak changes the way people think. And so that's what we're really trying to do with the words that we choose to describe people. And so that's what we'll kind of go through today on this. Um, just so for some context, we all have mental health. Everyone in this room has mental health. Everyone that you interact with has mental health. We're just all on different continuums of that mental health. Some may have an illness. Some may be just having some ups and downs of life. And some of us are really thriving. And even if you have a mental illness, you can also be on that other end of thriving. You may not be having symptoms that day. You may not... You may be doing things that are really meaningful and engaging for you. And so everyone, again, is on that continuum, and we all have mental health. And so I think that's a really good thing to think about as we speak about this. So some facts. So one in five people experience a mental illness at any given time. So chances are we interact with the person every day of our lives who has diagnosed with a mental illness, and we just may not know it. So again, that's another reason why to be really thoughtful of how you choose your words and how you speak um, about people. So out of those one in five people, three out of those five people experience a mental illness don't get treatment. And there's probably a lot of reasons why they don't, but some of them lose barriers. And why do we have some of those barriers? This is it. I'll call it the S word. Can you guys figure out what it is? <laughs> People sometimes fear of when they go to see somebody for maybe an illness that people think that they're weak. And that's really not the case, right? We all know that we all need help sometimes. And so one of the reasons we really work hard as not saying this word or not referring to this word is that the more that you talk about this, the more we reinforce that there's something wrong with people who have this. And so one of those things to really think about is how do we use, how do we talk about it in a way that we don't have to label it with a word, right? Because that really, that reinforces that whole 
fear that people have about being open about mental illness. So um, part of this program was about uh, how you speak about it in the, in the media. So I do have some references to that. And I won't go into this because I'll go into more detail later. But in 2013, um, the Associated Press did actually provide some context, um, added it to their style book, which is in the media world, the reporter's world. That's kind of their main Bible that they go by. Kind of gives them guidelines on how to speak and how to, or how to write things. And so they actually did a very good job with this. They really talked to you, you know, don't tell about a person's mental illness if it's not part of the story, right? Don't, don't do those things. Don't rely on hearsay, you know? Don't assume mental illness is a factor in violent crime. So they really have risen that, and it's actually, you can see there's some that are continuing to do that, some that are still on that learning curve, and we're just going to continue to help them figure that out. All right, so here we go. Here we talk about what this. So a person is not defined by their mental illness. Um, so really think about it as a person first. Using that person first language, you know, refer. don't get into the labels and the jargon and the judgments. They are people first. So instead of saying he is mentally ill, he is living with a mental illness. It changes that, right? It's not that this person is mental illness. It's just one condition that this person as an individual has. Again, she is schizophrenic. She has schizophrenia. She is living with schizophrenia, but she was diagnosed with schizophrenia. Is a better way of describing that for her. Again, don't use words that cause shame, like psychotic, disturbed, crazy, nuts, any of those. There's other ways to say it. He's disoriented. They're hallucinating. Maybe they're experiencing symptoms of their psychosis. There's other ways to do it, and we can do that. Um, again, she is afflicted with suffers from or is a victim or battling. You know, that's kind of giving that person a judgment, right? It's saying that they're having to do something against this. They're just living with it, like anybody else with any other illness is living with. So, again, they're just living with their disease. Some things to also think about is avoid using diagnosable conditions in a non-clinical sense, right? The weather was bipolar. You see that probably a little, you'll probably say that a lot here in Denver, right? But that really is kind of um, belittling to people who actually have that condition. It, it, it's kind of like not really taking it seriously. And I think that's what we need to do is take these seriously. Take, understand that these people, the people who have this, are really trying, are really working to be what the most that they can be. Um, again, she was OCD about organizing her art supplies. I'd rather kill myself. I'm going to have PTSD, watching the scary movie. Really try to avoid that. Really refrain from using that in those types of ways. Same with emotions. A lot of us kind of, you know, kind of flip and say things like, oh, I'm so depressed, the Broncos didn't win. Well, yeah, you may be sad, you may be frustrated with them, but you're really probably not depressed. A person who is clinically depressed doesn't really have a reason why that they're feeling that way. So it's really important to distinguish the two, really, and not kind of, again, belittle what people are really going through and feeling every day. 
Same with, you know, your driving is giving me an anxiety attack. Yeah, sure, you may be scared, <laughs> but you're not, your panic attack or your anxiety attack is not interfering with your life. It's just a phrase. And so I think it's really important to think beyond that. Another thing is that mental illness does not equal violence. And unfortunately, we hear that a lot in the media. And so it's really important to really think beyond that as well. Um, and it really does put people who have a mental illness feeling like they don't belong or feeling that people are scared about. And that's really not the case. Um, the fact is that individuals with a mental illness are 10 times more likely to be a victim of crime. So those, these are some really interesting statistics here. Also, the vast majority of people with a mental illness are not violent towards others. In fact, I think the statistic is that mental illness people, people with mental illness are no less likely to be violent as somebody without a mental illness. So we're all in that same boat. Um, and that's violence. Most, most perpetrators of mass violence do not have a mental illness, even though that's probably the first thing that sticks comes to people's mind when something like that happens. Yes, it's an unthinkable act. Yes, it's probably not someone that you wake up and feel like, this is what we can do. It's really, there's a lot of factors that go into that. And mental illness may or may not play into it. And more likely, it doesn't play into it. So just some other guidelines to consider if you're putting together a story. Um, to provide some context. Um, people, again, it's not that this illness defines a person. They are a mother, a brother, a co-worker. They have other lives other than um, mental illness. Um, respect a person's decision not to talk about right? Let them be. Let them under feel be with that. If you ever do do an article or when you talk to people about this, it's really important to think about providing some resources. Colorado Crisis Services, and I have cards over here. Um, there's community mental health centers throughout the state of Colorado who offer services, and those are other ways that you can do it. And then think about providing solutions as well, right? There's a lot of good in this world that is addressing these issues and how we are showing that, and so it's not always showing the negative. There's a lot of positive to it. Um, I'm with the Mental Health Center of Denver, and so these are just a couple, two programs that we do, the co-responder program, which uh, sends uh, clinicians out with police officers throughout Denver, and so that we can get people into services right then and there. Um, they don't have to go to jail, they don't have to you know, get processed. We're really there to provide those resources. And then we also have the Dahlia Campus for Health and Wellbeing, which is also, it's beyond a community mental health center. It has gardens, it has dental clinics, it's a preschool. There's yoga classes there. It's really a whole health plot of it. And another is do not equate being transgender with having a mental illness. They are very different, and they don't cross over. And I'm sure, Shane, you'll talk a little bit more about that as well. So when putting together stories, it's also important to think about your imagery. Think about how you're representing people who, who may have a mental illness. It's using that realistic pictures. Um, using images that reflect experiences and emotions. Using images of people doing everyday tasks. Um, 
a lot of these photos in here, these are the photos that we use every day and things that we do at the Mental Health Center of Denver to reflect the people in our community. So it's really just using real life kind of photos. We don't, we really shy away from people holding their head and looking like they're screaming. That is really not realistic, right? People don't do that. And so I think it's really important to, again, to showcase people as they are living in their lives. Um, addictions. So another, we know that many people who have mental health issues also have addiction issues. And so these, again, are just some things to think about as you're speaking um, about them. You know, don't say it, addict, junkie, or druggie. It's a person with substance use disorder. And again, it's that person first, thinking about the person first. Um, you know, a drug offender is a person arrested for drug violation. Again, it's taking them away from that situation and talking about that person first. And I have handouts over on the side that taught, have, give a lot of um, these do's and don'ts and what to say and how to say it for people with mental illness, drug addictions. Uh, I think there's a suicide prevention one over there as well. And the AP style if you need it. So, um, with that said, and how words are really important with what we do, um, there are ways that we can change this underlying cultural model of mental health. And Patty, you know this one probably very well, because I think I took it from your framework's information. So um, this is about, again, thinking about how we speak about mental health and helping people understand that we're all in this together and we need everyone to be part of the solution and to work together um, to create healthy and thriving communities. So it's really important to think about reframing mental health in positive terms, right? And this goes about back to everybody has mental health, right? We all have that. So it's not a, something to be ashamed of. Um, avoid crisis messaging. Um, and that kind of even goes with... Um, so avoiding crisis messaging really helps really talks to people feeling like they can't do anything about this, that it's overwhelming, it's too much, an epidemic, same type of thing. It feels like this is way too big for us. And that's not the case, right? So it's really avoiding that, speaking about it as a crisis. Um, use inclusive, positive language. So that is about, um, again, using that person-first language, Talking about us, if we talk about mental health, that we're all in this together. Um, avoid language that cues cultural models. This goes back to the S word and also like how to normalize mental health or mental illness. That again really reinforces that those there's a us versus them mentality. And that's really not the case. We are all again in this together and we need to be open to everyone and everything that they bring with them. And then tell stories with a wide-angle lens. So don't always focus on a single person who may be having some mental health issues. Think about it as a whole, as a community, as a community issue, and how we as a community can address this. Um, and so as we do that, so as I was doing some research, I came across two articles, one from the San Francisco Chronicle and one from the Los Angeles Times. To be fair, it was an AP Associated Press article for the Los Angeles Times that they picked up. 
this is about a story in San Francisco that San Francisco is going through. And they are, as we know, unfortunately, there's a lot, um, they're dealing with a lot of individuals who are homeless on the streets of San Francisco. And San Francisco is trying to figure out how to manage that in, a, in a, an appropriate way. And so what the city of San Francisco has been talking about is starting to mandate people getting into mental health treatment um, or into addiction treatment for people who are living on the streets. And so, um, and not that I promote this, but I just thought it was very interesting the way that these two publications spoke about the same very issue. And you can really see it, especially in the headlines. So for the Chronicle, it was people are refusing what we're offering. Bree, who is the mayor of San Francisco, pushes expansion of mandated San Francisco mental health treatment versus San Francisco to consider forced treatment for mentally ill addicts. Can you see a difference? Can you see how that really paints people in a different light? And then the first, I just took the two, first paragraph because, again, I thought they really showed a very different comparison. So San Francisco officials took some initial steps toward expanding the number of people that the city could compel into mental health treatment. They take a public health view of it. They look at it as a broader perspective. Whereas the AP story was San Francisco supervisors were expected to consider a proposal that could force drug addicts with serious mental illness into treatment. Right? It really paints two different pictures. So you can really see how it's so important the way the San Francisco Chronicle took those the messages and, and gave it back to the community as a way of we all need to be a part of this and need to think about how we can help. All right, let's talk about suicide. All right, um, as we know, unfortunately, suicides are continuing to grow and new suicides in, this, uh, in Colorado. We are one of the highest states with the highest level of suicide rates. So this is something, again, I think that we need to think about and think about how we speak and help people through this. Um, one of them is, you know, don't use words that describe suicide as criminal or sinful. Um, right? The committed suicide. That's People commit crimes. Suicide is not a crime. We shouldn't be talking about that they committed suicide. It's really died by suicide or, you know, took their own life. It's much more about, again, the person. Um, don't use words that glamorize or romanticize or make suicide appealing. I think that show 13 reasons why. There were a lot of discussions about that. Was that glamorizing suicide for youth? You know, did they want to be part like that? Um, don't use words that trivialize suicide. Um, and again, don't use it in a way like, I'd rather kill myself than write this paper. You know, it's like I would rather do anything but write this paper, right? Again, thinking about how you choose those words. Uh, don't describe suicide as a desirable outcome. And avoid specifying the method or including details about how a person died. So leave those information out. It's really... And then talk about, again, the person. Right? And if there, if you do talk about suicide, always include information that suicide can be prevented. There are usually warning signs when people are going through this. So think about including some of those warning signs for people to understand. Include links to the resources 
Colorado Crisis Services, Suicide Prevention Line. Um, think about suicide as a public health issue, a broader issue than just one person. Again, include information on the warning signs, maybe interview an expert on suicide, and include that information about instead about what this person was going through before they thought about this. And just know that suicide is preventable, help is available, and treatment can be successful. Really reiterating those messages are really important for people to hear. So I thought we'd kind of go through this and just understand how, again, people take in information from information around suicide or stories and how that impacts other people's lives. So recently a study was just released that um, suicides after Robin Williams' death increased by 10% uh, in the two months following his death. Um, and a significant increase was in the number of suicides of men who died by the same means that Robin Williams did. So they were wondering, like, why would that be? And what they kind of came up to surmise is that it was probably attributed to the detailed and glamorous, white, glamorized way that U.S. media coverage covered his death. So, right? People read this stuff. Media really influences our thoughts and how we do things. So what they looked at is that they... Um, looked at, I think there's 12 items here. It's from Mindset, who is um, a Canadian organization that studies suicide. Um, and they have this list of 12 items that people, or when you're reporting on suicide, that you should really kind of think about doing, right? Or not do. Um, and as they went through it, they found that, uh, they studied, six, they looked at 63 news articles um, following his death, none of the, no article followed all 12. It didn't get until five. So most people, they all followed at least five of them, but that was it. So there were still a lot of stories out there that did glamorize his death or did talk about why and what and really kind of made people think like, oh, I can escape my whatever, right? And that's really what we really want to try to avoid. We, that's not what we want to do. We want to make sure that people understand that suicide is preventable. There are resources out for people and that we can help them. Okay, I'm gonna hand it over to Sheena. Hey, how's everyone doing? Super quiet. I see some nodding and affirmation. <laughs> I get it. I had like a big old turkey club for lunch and I'm so ready for a nap now. Um, my name is Sheena Kai. Uh, I'm the Deputy Director at One Colorado, uh, which is the state's leading advocacy organization for lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer Coloradans and their families. Uh, my pronouns are she, her. Um, yes, and it is like so warm in this room. Is everyone else like... <laughs> I actually think I'm going to open the doors to get some uh, circulation here because it's a little toasty. All right. Um, one thing y'all should know about me 
I hate standing at the front of the room and talking at people. Um, so at least like do me the favor and like pretend to play along uh, and engage in a conversation with me. Yeah? Yeah. Sound good? All right. Uh, oh, sorry. All right, back we go. Who remembers uh, the STEM school shooting that happened earlier this year? Just about everyone in the room. What do folks remember? One more tragedy. Another tragedy. Why do you remember that piece? Yes, then I realize how it makes. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, obviously, it's wouldn't Yeah. Um, it was a very early day and a very late night. Um, language is important. Uh, as we can see here, um, how different media outlets chose to report uh, on this horrific tragedy varied. Um, the New York Times uh, original reporting on this, the original headline was transgender, transgender shooter at STEM school in Colorado. We are at a point in our lives when LGBTQ people's lives um, are increasingly intersecting in media. Uh, whether it's talking about family, jobs in the economy, faith in the faith and religion, sports, Supreme Court cases, um, politics, and entertainment. The best media coverage of LGBTQ issues and of LGBTQ people allows readers, viewers, and listeners to form their own conclusions based on factual information, uh, compelling stories, and unbiased appropriate context. Uh, the ask is simple for members of the media. Uh, we ask that you help give audiences that opportunity uh, in the coverage that you do. Why does language matter? Karen touched on this a little bit. This is the part where I want you to pretend that we're engaging in a conversation and I'm not standing at the front of the room like talking at you. Why does language matter? We're a society that views media, TV, news, whatever, as a window into the world, so whatever language we're using to reflect particular groups of individuals or how we internalize what they are in our society. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Very good point. Uh, that reminds me, when I was younger, the first, the first like song I ever learned as a kid was the theme song to the cartoon Chipmunks. Anybody? We're the chipmunks. C-H-I-P. Okay. Um, yeah. Anyone else? Saw another hand getting ready to go up here. It's pretty much the same thing. That language shapes our culture and our perceptions of culture. Our cultural perceptions. Absolutely. Absolutely. Language matters. 
Uh, it has the power uh, to offer validation. Uh, it has the power to acknowledge identities. Um, and it also has the power to deny those things. This is why it's so important to be aware of the impact of the language that you use and the context in which you are using it. And why folks need to make a conscious effort to use language that is inclusive uh, and validating for everyone, especially the LGBTQ community. Uh, has anyone seen any of these words in any media coverage in Colorado recently? Maybe a couple of no's. All of these terms here, under offensive, have been used by a mainstream radio, television, or print paper media outlet in Colorado within the last 12 months. Affirming and supporting people for who they are and how they identify is an integral part of creating equal space for the LGBTQ community. And inclusivity within language is just as important as any other kind of inclusivity in culture. would we want to stay away from this first group of language and reporting on LGBTQ issues and LGBTQ people? Yes. Yes. These are derogatory terms. Um, the criteria for using these derogatory terms should be the same criteria as applied to other vulgar terms um, used to target other groups. Um, they are rooted in hate, they are rooted in bias, and they are rooted in othering people. Uh, they should never, I repeat, never, uh, be used except in a direct quote that reveals the bias of the person being quoted. That's it. Uh, so that such words are not giving credibility in media and not seen as reflective uh, of our culture and society. Uh, it's preferred that reporters would, instead of saying these words, uh, would say, you know, the, this person used a derogatory word to describe someone who was transgender, to describe someone who was bisexual, to describe someone who was lesbian. Why should we stay away from the second group here? Karen just touched on these. It's not true. Yes. The notion that being LGBTQ is a psychological disorder was discredited by the American Psychological Association and the American Psychiatric Association back in the 1970s. Um, Today, words such as deviant and diseased and disordered um, often are used to portray LGBTQ people as less than human, mentally ill, or a danger to society. Uh, 
Again, words such as these should be avoided in all stories. Um, if they must be used, what do folks think we should do? It's like the only time that we should use these. Yes. <laughs> if they must be used, they should be quoted directly uh, in a way that reveals the bias of the person being quoted. Oh. <laughs> what about this third group here? What about this third group here? Uh, I got a call uh, from um, Deborah Post was covering um, the STEM shooting. I uh, was in contact with the porter that was covering the story uh, for most of the day. Um, about three, four o'clock in the afternoon, uh, the reporter had reached out and she was like, um, we're, like, we're hearing rumors that like, maybe the suspects like might share identity with the community and one of them might also maybe possibly have a history of sexual abuse. Do y'all want to comment? And I'm like, comment on what? And she's like, comment on the facts that one of the... They might share identity and might be a victim of sexual abuse and, you know, as a suspect in the shooting. And I'm like, no. Why? No. Those things are not related. Uh, being LGBTQ is neither synonymous nor indicative of any tendency towards pedophilia, child abuse, sexual abuse, big bigamy, adultery, or incest. Um, such claims innuendos, associations are often used, again, to insinuate that LGBTQ folks are a threat to society, uh, to families, uh, and in particular to children. Um, we should avoid using this language at all times, except in the case. Oh, almost heard it, almost heard it. Direct quotes that clearly reveal the bias uh, of the person being quoted. When people tell you their name, that's their name. It is what you should address them by and what you should use if you're speaking to them. Uh, using any other name is harmful and disrespectful. Why should we be using folks' names and pronouns? Humanizing and validating. Rocket science. Yes, I'm like it's it's not rocket science. Some folks some folks pretend it is, uh, but it's not rocket science. We are all conscious of the impact that a name can have on us. I'm sure at some point in all of our lives, we've all been called outside of our name. Yeah? We've all been called something other than our name, usually a derogatory term. Remember what that feels like. Because for some folks, they think this is a small thing. They think this doesn't matter. Uh, but to people 
uh, in the transgender, non-binary, gender non-conforming, gender queer spaces, um, and the LGBT community as a whole. Um, it is a, it's a huge thing that has a large impact um, on folks, uh, their identities, um, and how they interact with the world around them. Hmm. Who in here is familiar with the term dead naming? Want to tell folks what that is? When you use uh, name that used to be used for a transgender person that isn't their actual name. So name that they were given when they were born, for example, that they don't use now, that's their dead name. Mm -hmm. You call them that, you were dead naming them. Yes. And here, transgender uh, community is used as an umbrella term to incorporate transgender non-binary, gender queer, gender non-conforming folks. Um, Uh, in 2018, uh, there have now been 22 uh, transgender women of color who have been violently murdered in this country. Unfortunately, in most of that media coverage, um, folks are dead named and misgendered. Who's familiar with the term misgendering? Yes. You want to share with folks so everyone knows? Using normal pronouns or gender. Mm-hmm. Using, using, using pronouns um, that someone doesn't identify with. Um, usually in reflection uh, of, their, of their gender. This usually starts with a press release from a police department. When a, it's usually a local paper, picks up on it. Um, they tend to report off the information that is on the press release. And I'll be honest, there are Reporters, I think reporters are a lot like teachers. They are overworked, they are underpaid. Um, it's very easy just to regurgitate what is on a press release. To have one of the last memories of a family member, friend, neighbor, colleague, forever memorialized on the internet. Dead naming and misgendering them is not okay. It's not okay. It is never appropriate to dead name someone. It is never appropriate to say they were born so-and-so or born with this sex assigned at birth and now identify as this person, that is not relevant context to the story.
more than 80% of media coverage of LGBTQ issues and LGBTQ folks is depicted with the use of one symbol. Any guesses as to what that symbol is? I see some smiles. What do you think it is? The rainbow flag. It's the rainbow. 80%! And I get it, right? Like, I see a rainbow flag hanging off of someone's balcony, driving the street, I'm like, family, I see you, <laughs> right? Um, for some, it can be a symbol of like a safe and inclusive space. Um, but I'm, we're, we're, more than, we're more than rainbow flags. Um, we're more than pride festivals and glitter uh, and parties. 80% of media coverage um, of depicting LGBTQ folks and LGBTQ issues uh, is done so using pictures of rainbows. We know that when LGBTQ folks are depicted in normal, everyday settings with family, with friends, with coworkers. This changes how folks perceive us in the community. I don't know how well we can see this back here. This middle cartoon, does anyone remember seeing this coming out a couple years ago? I got a couple of nods here. Um, it is depicting uh, Trump, 45, um, shirtless and pantless. Um, I believe they're, they're riding a unicorn in this. Um, and he is spooning Putin. When this cartoon was run in the New York Times, there was huge backlash. Um, and there was a huge controversy, even within the LGBTQ community, of whether this was humor, or if this was even appropriate to print. Does anyone have any idea why this might cause a controversy within the LGBTQ community itself? Any thoughts on maybe why this would not be okay or offend someone? in a gay identity and gay relationship um, to villainize two people and associates uh, queer identity with uh, really problematic populations. Yeah. Um, we're pretty lucky here in Denver. Um, it's a pretty inclusive space. Um, most of the time, queer friendly. Um, did anyone like grow up um, in like rural America, in the South? A couple of hands, where'd you grow up? Ohio. Same. Mm. Mm. North, Northwest Ohio. Where are you from? Appalachian parts of Virginia. Ooh, Appalachian parts of Virginia. I saw another hand. Yeah. Waco, Texas, sir. Do you have any memories or experiences of um, how 
LGBTQ folks were perceived or treated growing up in those areas? Yeah? Bad? It was always a put down. A put down? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, growing, growing up in Northwest Ohio, um, in a, a rust belt blue collar, um, I'm like, I think it's technically still considered a city. Um, Toledo, Ohio. Um, I remember that it was 